Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Why do people go bald? Why are baboons bums red? What's a light year? Why do leaves go brown in the autumn? Why do monkeys like bananas? Why do some things glow in the Why dark? do animals not understand you? Why do my receipts fade after a year? Don't know the answer? Ask the Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Ask the Naked Scientist with me, Sue Marchant and Chris Smith. What's the latest story from the the world of science? There's a wonderful story out today actually about laughter and where the question of human laughter comes from because there's this idea that laughing is a uniquely human trait but there's a paper which has been published by a lady called Marina de Villaros who's a researcher at Portsmouth University and what she's done is to show that primates so our closest ape ancestors and cousins also laugh and the way she's done this is by tickling infants from various species of primates. So she took human babies and she recorded the sounds of them laughing. Then she tickled some bonobo babies and tickled them laughing. And then, sorry, and recorded them when they laughed when she tickled them. Uh, then she did the same thing with some chimpanzees, some gorillas, and also some orangutans. And the reason she made the recordings is because she wanted to find out how complex the laughter was and what sorts of patterns and vocal movements were involved in making the laughter because she had a theory about where laughter came from. And the really intriguing thing was when she fed those sounds into a spectral analyzer, so in other words, broke the sounds down into digital audio data and then analyzed the patterns, a really interesting pattern emerged, which was that it exactly follows the evolutionary tree which connects us to all of those animals. So in other words, about 16 million years ago was a common ancestor that we're all descended from. That's the last common ancestor we share with orangutans. And they share a, a degree of our laughter behaviour in terms of how we, how we make laughter sounds. Next in the pecking order, gorillas, then chimpanzees, then bonobos, and then humans. And so in, in each step up the evolutionary tree, there's a slight increase in complexity based on the sort of core elements inherited from your close ancestor. So, uh, in other words, we get our laughter from these other animals and we've just complexified it a little bit. And this is really interesting because previously people thought that we were the only animals to laugh, but these animals definitely are laughing. Um, They're definitely making the same movements as us. What they're not doing, though, is necessarily sharing our sense of humour, which in some people's case is probably a good thing. (laughs) <laughs> That's absolutely fascinating. In fact, um, that brings us to our um, our first question uh, from uh, Leanne in Gillingham. She says, uh, hi, Sue, can you ask Dr. Chris why we can't tickle ourselves? Well, it's a very good question. And what scientists think is the reason is that the brain has built into it a cancellation system. So in other words, things that we do to ourselves, we expect those things to happen and we cancel out the sensation that's going to arise because of us doing that. So it takes away some of the surprise and some of the anticipation and some of the, some of the unexpected element, and that's really what we find so 
distracting about being tickled because we're supposed to respond to tickling type sensations because that could be for instance a mosquito or some other bug or parasite crawling on your skin and irritating you and so you need to respond to tickling in and pay lots of attention because you need to slap away the mosquito but when someone comes along and tickles you of course they're putting that system into overdrive but you don't want to be responding to all of the senses that you're creating just through your existence. You want to be able to listen to the world around you, not be distracted by the sounds of your own thoughts, put it that way. And so what scientists have shown is that there are regions of the brain which cancel out incoming sensory information. They subtract from all the sensory information you have presented to your consciousness that which you're doing yourself. And to give you an example of that, most of us, as soon as we put on our clothes... We are aware of the sensation of the clothes going on, but we very quickly then ignore them. But as soon as attention is drawn to the fact that you're wearing an item of clothing, you can almost certainly feel it touching your skin. So you've programmed yourself to ignore that sensation, and as a result, it isn't presented to your consciousness. And I think tickling probably is similar. Your brain is expecting that sensation, therefore it doesn't have surprise elements to it, therefore you don't get so wound up about it, put it that way. Alan has a question, Dr. Chris. Um, he says, when you go to have your blood pressure checked, why does the reading always seem to be in the same place, irrespective of the size of the person? And also, in the case of an amputee, would the blood pressure be the same? Chris? Yeah, very good question, Alan. Uh, the answer is that it's not the same uh, for all sizes of all people. Um, blood pressure tends to be higher in bigger people and slightly lower in smaller people. And children can, when they're very, very little, have, small, have lower blood pressures. But once you get beyond a certain size, Alan is right that the vast majority of the population have normal blood pressure, which we take arbitrarily to be 120 over 80. That means 120 is the pressure developed in your arteries when the heart contracts, when it beats, and 80 is the pressure left in your arteries after the heart's finished beating and while it's relaxing and refilling, ready for the next beat. That's why we call it 120 over 80, and that's the systolic over the diastolic blood pressure. Now, the reason that the vast majority of people have normal blood pressure, thank God, because high blood pressure, hypertension, is very bad news because it damages blood vessels. It's therefore linked to heart attacks and strokes. But the reason that we have normal blood pressure is because a very important mechanism is at play to keep blood pressure stable. What you have is sensors in the arteries in your aorta, the body's main blood vessel, but also in your neck, in your carotid arteries, which are sensitive to how hard the blood is stretching or pushing on the wall of the blood vessel. And these structures, called the carotid sinus and the aortic sinus, these nerves feed into the nervous system, the brainstem, and they feed back onto a part of that structure where there are nerves which control how hard and how fast the heart beats. So at this moment, they can therefore control how much blood the heart squirts into the blood vessels, which affects the pressure. And they can also affect how tightly the blood vessels constrict around the body. And that again affects blood pressure. So if your blood pressure goes up, for instance, you get stressed or nervous, then these nerves feed back and they say the blood pressure is too high. You need to make the heart work a bit less hard and also relax the blood vessels a little bit. And the blood vessels then open up. The heart doesn't beat so hard and eject so much blood so quickly. And as a result, you don't end up with such high blood pressure. So this is why most people's blood pressure is centred on the normal range. But obviously that can go wrong. And sometimes when people have various disease states, or in 90% of cases we don't know why, people get high blood pressure. And these protective mechanisms 
reset themselves so that they tolerate a higher blood pressure. So although initially they might try and bring the blood pressure down with time, then they reset themselves to tolerate a higher blood pressure. And although they stop trying to bring, bring the blood pressure down, it's still bad to run a high blood pressure because it can damage blood vessels. You know, it's quite a worrying thing because there aren't s- sort of so many symptoms with high blood pressure until, you know, something sort of desperate happens. It's referred to as the silent killer because there are no symptoms of high blood pressure unless you have excessively high blood pressure for many years. And as a result, you can get quite bad damage to various end organs, in other words, various tissues that get impacted by the high blood pressure. And it's not until something catastrophic fails that you realise that there was an underlying problem. For instance, strokes. It can cause bleeding into the brain or damage to blood vessels and blood vessels then block, which again damages the brain. Mm. High blood pressure can also increase the workload on the heart and so the heart muscle can get too big and that's called cardiac hypertrophy. And it can also damage the kidneys. You can get damage to your kidneys because of very high high blood pressure. This is called hypertensive nephropathy. And if you look at someone's kidney that has had hypertension for a very long time, the surface is all granular and pitted where kidney tissue has been destroyed by very high blood pressure over a long period of time. So it is bad news and it's a good idea to try and get blood pressure checked regularly so that you can keep it under control. The causes of high blood pressure in some rare cases are genetics, but in less rare cases in the majority of cases we just don't know what causes high blood pressure they're so-called idiopathic cases and it's common about half of all people over the age of 50 might have high blood pressure and to a certain extent it can be controlled by diet and exercise and being overweight so if you keep your exercise up if you keep your weight down and don't eat too much salt that tends to minimize the risk of high blood pressure Likewise, not smoking is a good idea, and eating a healthy diet, which is the best thing to do in all circumstances, really, that also can keep blood pressure down. Um, in terms of amputations and things, if you, if you have bits chopped off your body, then actually the blood pressure can be lower because normally you have to put enough blood into blood vessels so that it will ha- be able to supply all the tissues of the body. So if, uh, as Alan asks, if you remove, say, some legs off of somebody, if they're a double amputee, Um, that can result in there being less tissue for the body to try and perfuse and therefore less blood is being pumped in any given instant and therefore the actual overall pressure in your main blood vessels tends to be a bit lower. So people can have lower blood pressure through that reason. Mm, Mine's always been quite low anyway. Um, June has said, uh, Dear Dr Chris, um, have you found out any more about the bees? There seems to be a lot of stories about uh, the bees, not, you know, a lot of bees dying. Do you know anything about that? Well... There's been a worldwide phenomenon in the last about five years called colony collapse disorder. And this is where people will return to their hive, which was flourishing with a lovely bee colony, and it will be almost empty, a few dead bees, but not much to find. And as a consequence of that, people are now thieving people's bees. For the first time in history, we're seeing people's bees being stolen because of this, but it has had a devastating effect worldwide. It's been very much in evidence in America, but also in Europe and Certainly there's been a decline in bees here in the UK. I was looking in my garden the other day and I can remember 20 years ago if you were to look on uh, an area of grass which had lots of clover flowers or something, it would be completely covered in honeybees. And nowadays it's mainly just the big bumblebees that are buzzing around and the honeybees aren't here anymore. Um, No one knows what causes this colony collapse disorder as yet. Um, The jury's out, but there are various suspicions. People wonder about virus infections. They're also worrying about other parasites. Um, and including one parasite called varroa mites. These are tiny fleas that live on bees. They're like mites. 
and they suck the bee's blood. But in the course of doing that, they can jump from one bee to another and they might be able to pass infections from one bee to the next. I don't think the actual mites are necessarily responsible because they probably aren't capable of demolishing a colony like that. But if they spread infections around, that could be one cause. But at the moment, we just don't know. And it's going to be a question of looking at the environment and asking, is there something in the environment which is doing this? Is there something new on the biological block? Have we had some kind of new infection appeared? Are we using some kind of new chemical which is impacting on the environment? Are people growing more of certain plants that might have a negative effect on bees? Those kind of questions. And until really we can marry all the facts together, we're just not going to know. But never underestimate the value of bees because the value of bees or the contribution of bees to the UK economy is billions of pounds. If it wasn't for bees, our crops, many of them, would not get pollinated and therefore we would not have juicy tomatoes to eat in the case of bumblebees and uh, big juicy other plants and, and fruits to eat in the case of honeybees. So we're very grateful to bees because they do a huge amount for the economy of this country. Now, Dr Chris, this is normally one that we uh, pose for uh, Dr Dave, but I know you've got a lightning brain and you know lots of things. Lawrence from Bassingbourne has asked, if you were on a bus travelling at 60 miles per hour and sitting at the front and you were to throw a sweet wrapper in the air, why, when it falls, does it not end up at the back of the bus when it hits the ground? When you're holding the sweet wrapper before you even throw it, you're travelling at the same speed of the bus, and therefore the wrapper that you're holding in your hand is travelling at the same speed as the bus. So when you throw the wrapper up in the air, it's going to carry on forward inside the air in the bus, which is also moving at 60 miles an hour, and the only net force that's acting on it after you've thrown it is one going up in the air off your hand to push it up in the air in the first place and then gravity is pulling it down so as a result the the air around it and the wrapper itself doesn't feel a force back towards the back of the bus because the air it's in isn't moving to apply a force to it therefore relative to the outside world the the, the wrapper doesn't care the, the the world isn't moving relative to the inside of the bus it stays in a straight line which is exactly what it does it goes up and comes down the science of things let's get back to uh, some health things this is an anonymous uh text that's come in it says very grateful to your program after feeling dizzy flashing lights high blood uh, blurred vision found out that i have a 100 percent blocked cartoid artery in the neck what can i do yes that's carotid artery um and the condition that's been referred to is carotid artery stenosis mm. uh, if you have arterial disease then one artery that can get affected is your carotid artery which is one of the main arteries in your neck. You have one on each side, and if you feel gently in the side of your neck, you can feel it pulsing. The carotid artery does two things. It has one branch which gives blood to your face and your head and scalp, and another branch which runs deeper and then goes inside your skull, and it gives the majority, about um, 80% of the blood supply to the brain. And it gets inside your skull and then divides into lots of branches, including a supply to your eyes and then a supply to the brain tissue. And that's why you get blurred vision and uh, funny bright lights in your eyes if you have problems with the blood supply to the brain because one of the first, well, the first branch of the carotid artery inside your brain is the supply to your retina, which is actually the most metabolically active tissue in the body. It uses more energy per weight of tissue than any other bit of the body. And because it's burning off so much energy, it's very sensitive to changes in blood flow. If it doesn't get enough blood flow, it doesn't get enough oxygen and glucose, and so it begins to misfire or run badly and that's why if you stand up from a hot bath very quickly 
your blood pressure transiently dips and you see those funny lights in front of your eyes because mm. you're temporarily depriving the retina of its blood supply. Now, in terms of what to do about blocked carotid arteries, there is, a, there is a, um, an operation, it's called uh, endarterectomy. So what this means is that um, a person is taken to the operating theatre, the surgeon will insert a, some kind of way of bypassing blood flow around the blockage. So you have a line which goes inside the carotid artery and picks up blood from before the blockage. You then thread it into the other end of the artery so it can take blood beyond the blockage and then you operate on the bit of artery between cleaning and clearing the obstruction so that the person then has a, a clean artery in that point and that that way it then what's called re-endothelializes you get uh, the lining cells from the blood vessel grow over the the area that you've cleaned and make a smooth lining again and this restores blood flow to the brain the reason that you can tolerate having a completely blocked artery on one side is because of an amazing bit of anatomy called the Circle of Willis. This is after Thomas Willis, who was a famous anatomist about 400 years ago. And what Thomas Willis described was this amazing anastomotic connection of blood vessels on the base of the brain. So in other words, if you were to look at a brain, turn it over and look at the blood vessels, when the artery comes in, it divides into a number of branches, but all these branches connect together, forming a circle. So it's a bit like the M25 round London, if you put cars onto the M25 from the M4, they can go all the way around the M25 and get back to the M4 again. Or they could join at the M11 and go to the M4, and they can do that northbound or southbound around the M25. So in other words, if that's blood, it can get to any part of the brain via any part of this circle of Willis, this M25 in the brain, enabling it to always get to different bits of the brain tissue, even if one part of that circle is blocked. And that's why, if you have a blockage to an artery on one side, you can, comp you can compensate by allowing blood to flow mainly from the other side to the tissue that would otherwise be de de deprived of blood flow. And that protects you very, very well up to a point. And especially if it comes on over a while, because the arteries can all compensate their flow in order to make sure that you maintain good circulation of the brain. If you're enjoying Ask the Naked Scientist, then you might like to check out The Naked Scientist, our regular roundup of the world's best science. Each week we take a look at the latest science news, talk to top researchers working at the coalface of discovery, and also get our hands dirty with a science experiment that you can join in with too. So make it a date and prepare to strip down science on the web at nakedscientist.com slash podcast. Right, one uh, question here um, from uh, Gerald, who says, um, Hi Sue, via Facebook, I got into contact with my cousin's son and got into an argue with another cousin over, over whether he is my nephew or first cousin once removed. Out of politeness, I called my parents' cousins, aunt and uncle, and their children as cousin. However, is it correct that my cousin's children are my cousins? The question of this method of naving relatives determines permissions of marriage, siblings' marriage that are not legal. Um, first cousin marriages are in some cultures. This method of naving um, naming cousins means that the parent of my second cousin is also first cousin once removed. The reason for the naming goes back to the ancestry in common. There is also an implied genetic relationship so that the, my parents' cousins, my pe sorry, my parents' cousin and my parents' siblings' children both have 6.25 of the same genes. If this is the case, how far away genetically does a relative have to be before there is virtually no chance of inbreeding and increasing the risk of bad genes becoming serious, as in the Bradford studies? Whew, that's a long one, Gerald. Thank you very much. 
Okay. Uh, it's also quite a complicated question. Um, but the answer is, uh, if you look at your genes, you inherit half of your genes from your father and half from your mother. And this means that if you have a brother and a sister, they share at least half their genes. So in other words, the mum donates half of her chromosomes and the dad donates half of his. And so if you totted up the shared amount of genetic material, it's 50%. So if I was to compare myself and my brother, I would have at least half of his genes. Now, what about his children? Well, if he had some children, he would be mixing his genes with his wife and his wife would therefore contribute 50% and he would contribute 50%. So his children would therefore have half of him and half of her. Half of a half is a quarter, and therefore my brother's children, which would be my niece and nephew, for example, would have a quarter of my genes, for example. So, um, and if you compare that to the grandparents, sorry, they'd have a quarter of the parents' genes. So therefore cousins... Again, if you were to do this again, you would have a quarter of a quarter, half a quarter, sorry, that'd be an eighth. So you share an eighth of your genes with your cousin. That's 12.5%. And this is viewed as uh, sufficiently distant that you are not at risk of inbreeding if you marry your cousin. But this is probably wrong, because if you look at civilizations in history and if you look at populations today who tend to intermarry and where marriages between cousins are acceptable, this is quite common in places like uh, Pakistan, then what you find is a very high proportion of individuals who get uh, metabolic problems and genetic problems because of this incestuous or consanguineous relationships. Because if you've got genes running in families that are bad news, then there's a likelihood, if you keep marrying into the same family, that those bad genes will get doubled up and you'll have two copies of a bad gene, so you have no good gene to compensate, and so the disease that one of those genes can cause will manifest. And you do see this quite a lot in uh, cultures that do insist on marrying their cousins. Hmm, gosh, that's a long one. Uh, Chris, a question that's just come in from um, Yasser. He says, uh, why does mouthwash make water seem colder? I've noticed that. Why does it? If it's mint mouthwash, it definitely will, and that's because the minty flavour is caused by the addition of menthol to the mouthwash. A menthol, scientists have found, and this uh, is a researcher at the University of California, San Francisco, called David Julius, who published this recently. Uh, what scientists have found is that menthol activates a nerve receptor, in other words, a docking station on the surface of nerve fibres, called TRIP, T-R-P-M-8. And this nerve receptor is responsible for being activated by cold. So when you make a certain class of nerve fibres colder, they become more active because of this receptor becoming active, and that's how you sense that things are getting colder. Now, menthol binds to that same receptor and activates it a bit. So this means that when you put something cool in your mouth, because the receptor is already more active than it would normally be, as soon as you put something cooler in your mouth it goes nuts and thinks it's much colder than it really is. Mm. And it's effectively the reverse of what chilli does to make your mouth feel hotter when you put something in it. So if you eat some food that's got lots of chilli in it, the food feels much hotter than it really is, as well as being spicy, because yeah. the chilli is sensitising the nerve fibres that are responsible for triggering the sensation of heat to the heat in the food. 
So mouthwash, got menthol, activate trip M8, and this makes your mouth get more sensitive to cold things. So when you put some cold water in your mouth, it feels much colder than it really is. The same trick with your breath. When you take a deep breath in after eating some mints, your whole mouth feels cold for exactly the same reason. We have a very welcome caller on the line. It's Tony. Hello, Tony. Good evening, my dear. Good evening to you. What's your question? You're through to Dr Chris. Right. Uh, well, I've been thinking of all things about smell. It's a very important thing, really, but I know very little about it. I wondered if you could help explain, you know, what exactly makes things smell. What exactly is smell? Good to talk to you again, Tony. The answer... Yeah to that is that smell is a combination or the spectrum of odorants which are chemicals which are drifting around in the world around you so in the same way that the light you see in the world around you is a combination of lights of lots of different wavelengths and when they're combined together you see a certain color well a smell is the combination of all of the different chemical odorants and so when you smell a smell from a plant or a flower it's very rare that you would be smelling one individual molecule. What you're actually smelling is a bouquet or a combination of different molecules which combine together to make the thing we call a smell or an odour. And the way it works is that these chemicals go up your nose and at the bridge of your nose is a structure called the olfactory epithelium. This is a thin layer of tissue out of which is sticking like miniature television aerials nerve cells with chemical receptors on them. And there are about 350 individual receptors that are sensitive to certain chemical configurations. So in other words, when a smell molecule goes up your nose, it will lock on and bind and activate one or several of those olfactory receptors. And those olfactory receptors trigger impulses in the nerve to which they're connected. And that nerve then sends that signal to the brain, to the olfactory cortex and the underside of the brain. And the brain then adds together all the relative contributions of the different nerves and it then says, well, I've got six of that, one of that, one of that, one of that, one of that. That smells like orange or that smells like bubblegum. And so it matches up the combination or the cocktail of activations of these different receptors because different chemicals activate each of the different receptors a different amount and the sum total is the smell that you experience. Good Lord. I believe dogs have a much better smelling ability than we have. Yes, it's true. Um, and mice, too. Mice have really? an incredible smelling resolution. If you look at a mouse, I've said to you that we've got about 350 different mm -hmm. receptors or docking stations for smells in our nose. Well, a mouse has more than a 1,000, and dogs have more than that. And the way these receptors work is that they can discriminate different chemicals. And so if you have more receptors which can discriminate more different chemicals, you can therefore discriminate between more smells. In other words, it's, it's like having higher resolution. It's like having a more powerful microscope. You can zoom in on a smell with much greater intensity and you can therefore examine molecularly a smell much more accurately. And you can also smell things which, because we don't have the receptors for them, we can't smell. So... Dogs, therefore, have extremely keen noses. We've probably bred them that way to a certain extent because we wanted dogs that could perform feats with their nose. Uh -huh. And as a result, we've, we've got dogs today that do have this prodigious sense of smell. And the suggestion is that a dog's sense of smell is a good few hundred thousand times more sensitive than a human. And as a result, they can, they can detect minute amounts. But there are animals out in the world that are very, very sensitive to smell. There are moths around that can detect the pheromones 
the smell of another moth of the same species in parts per trillion in the atmosphere. So they have incredibly sensitive antennae, and, and it's all down to chemistry. Oh. I also, he said that pollution is um, killing off the smell of plants too. Well, there's, there's one um, rather worrying statistic, which is that uh, as we see a warmer world and a more polluted world, then we'll see more ozone being made at ground level. Uh. And ozone can poison plants. And this will have an effect on the ability of the plants to respire because they'll close off their stomata, the little pores on the underside of the leaf. And as a result, because the, le the, the plants will be partly damaged by the ozone, they'll actually use less water, so they'll put less water into the atmosphere, but they'll also use less CO2, so there could be a sort of positive feedback effect that's, that's predicted if this comes to fruition, so let's hope it doesn't. Indeed. Anyway, thank you very much, Doctor. Very, very interesting. Fantastic. Thank you, Tony. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Tony. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Tony. Now, uh, our next question comes from Royden. And um, he said, why does hot water sound different from cold water? He said he, when he puts his shower on, he can tell the difference between the hot and the cold. Why does it do that, Chris? Yes, I have a shower that does exactly the same thing. You turn the shower on in the morning and the cold water will run. And if you listen carefully, you can hear the tone of the water change when the hot water arrives coming out the shower head. Why is that? Well, it's because when you make water warmer, it becomes less sticky, less viscous. Water is a very sticky molecule. Um, if you could zoom in on it, what you'd see is something shaped like a miniature boomerang with the oxygen atom at the apex of the boomerang and two hydrogen atoms on each of the arms of the boomerang. And oxygen likes electrons. It's called electronegative. So it pulls the electrons of the hydrogen towards itself and this makes the hydrogen a bit plus, and it makes the oxygen a bit minus. And as a result of this charge difference, you've got polarised molecules, which if you put lots of them together, the pluses on the hydrogen try to snuggle up close to the minuses on the oxygen, and vice versa. So water, therefore, wants to stick together. And when it's cold, it's very sticky, but if you heat it up, you're giving more energy to the individual water molecules so they move around more, they move around faster, and so they don't stick together so well, so they're looser, they're more runny, if you like. Mm. And so when you turn the shower on, the water coming out is stickier, and when it hits the floor, it makes a different ringing sound than when it's warmer, and it's going to be splashier. And you can do the experiment at home if you haven't got a shower to turn on. Get two cups with an identical volume of water in them, one filled with cold water, the other filled with hot water out of the tap. Pour them into the sink one at a time from exactly the same height and in the same way, tipping your hand in the same way, and listen to the sound that comes off. And you'll find that the hot water produces a higher note than the cold water because it's less viscous, more runny, therefore splashier, for want of a better word. Valin Ely um, asks, what is vertigo and how do you get it and how do you cure it? Chris? I don't think we can actually cure vertigo. Vertigo is this sensation of rotation in the absence of movement. That's the textbook definition. So if you were to stand up and close your eyes and you'd have this sensation that the room is spinning, you're moving, it's though someone's put you on a roundabout but you're not actually moving, that's what vertigo is. Um, and the reason it happens is, for there are various reasons, but it's, it's all down to a, a structure called um, the uh, labyrinths. These, this is part of your vestibular system. You have in your inner ear 
uh, three connected semicircular canals. They're called semicircles because it's a bit like if you take your thumb and index finger and make a letter C, they're that sort of shape, only they're about the size of a five pence piece or smaller each. And they're connected together at 90 degrees to each other. And what I mean by that is that you've got one which is like your hand held out in front of you with the letter C parallel to the tabletop, another one with the letter C with your fingers pointing down like two prongs into the tabletop, and then another one if you've rotated your hand 90 degrees and the letter C is now with its surface facing you. And having them in those orientations means that they can detect movement in any direction because when you move your head those semicircular canals contain fluid and because they're bony and fixed when you move your head they move but the liquid inside them gets left behind it stays still and this means that the liquid staying still pushes against detectors tiny hair cells that project into those um, semicircular canals and when the hairs get displaced they open or close iron channels. These are pores on the surfaces of nerve cells and the nerves get more or less active and they send impulses to the brain telling you which direction your head must be moving in. And the brain then uses that information, A, to keep you balanced because it tells your cerebellum, which is the bit of brain at the back of your head, how to compensate for the, for, um, the various movements your head is undergoing so that you stay balanced. And at the same time, it also is wired up to your eyes so that your eyes completely match and move in the opposite direction to any movement of your head. So in other words, you can show this on yourself. If you extend your hand and hold your index finger up so you look at your fingernail and now shake your head backwards and forwards, you can move your head in any direction and you will always be able to keep looking directly at your fingernail and get a clear picture of it. And that's your vestibular system telling your eyes how to move in an equal and opposite way to, to cancel out the movement of your head. But that same system is responsible for the sensation of vertigo and seasickness because when things go wrong with it, the signals that it sends to the brain are at odds with what's actually happening. And as a result, your brain gets confused between what's actually happening to your body and what your, vertigo, what your vestibular system is telling the brain is happening to your body and that mismatch triggers a sensation of sickness in some people. It also means that you then feel very wobbly because your brain is trying to compensate for movements that aren't happening. And you start to compensate for this movement that hasn't happened, which makes you unstable. And then you realise you're getting unstable, so you have to compensate back again. So you become very wobbly. And it's very, very debilitating. And I feel very sorry for people who have it. But um, thankfully, it doesn't happen to many to many people too often mm. and often when you go up tall buildings and look down the visual system has an argument with the vestibular system and that's what causes it that's it for this week our doctors will be back with me next week for more ask the naked scientist but don't forget you can also catch them on the naked scientist podcast which you can find on the naked scientist website www.nakedscientist.com the naked scientists are sponsored by the welcome trust the epsrc and uk fast for more information Look us up online at nakedscientists.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.